Are you ready for God's word? All right, here we go. Two more messages in, in Revelation is all we have. And so we're in the first five verses of chapter 22 today. And I, I was wondering as we, as we get into this, uh, because of a phrase that's in the passage, I, I was thinking again about what Jesus really looks like. You ever wondered that? Like, what does Jesus, what does he really look like? We have all these paintings and, and depictions of Jesus um, that people have created. And they've created these images based on really no information whatsoever, almost no information whatsoever. I mean, here's what we know for sure. If we were drawing a picture of Jesus, here's what we know for sure. We know he was Jewish. We know he was male. We know he was able-bodied. And we know that he was bearded. We also know he was taller than Zacchaeus. That's about all we know. We could also conclude from evidence because of the part of the world where he lived, we could conclude from evidence um, that he was olive-skinned and that he was uh, dark-haired. What we don't know about his appearance, but seems to be commonly accepted when you look at all the pictures of him, what we don't know about him is his hair length, his physical build, his height, and his facial structure. But there's this common look in all of the art, but that common look is speculative. Or, if I'm being really generous toward the, all the artsy people, I would just say that it's artistic impression. It's everyone's artistic impression about who Jesus is. And then there's one more scriptural detail that's so important when we think about what Jesus actually looks like. And it comes 600 years before he was born. The prophet Isaiah records this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was ordinary. He did not stand out in the crowd at all. And in fact, that bears out when you fast forward the 600 years from the time the prophet said that to his birth and his upbringing in the city of Nazareth, the town of Nazareth, people didn't think he was anything special and were shocked when he went to the synagogue and read the scriptures and said, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your presence because they thought he was just one of them. There was nothing remarkable about him at all. They had no idea that he was who he said he was that he is who he is. But then, in the book of Revelation, with the apocalyptic visions that John receives, that all changes. And we know that in the end, and this is the phrase from our passage today, we will see his face. Having never seen him, having known him by faith alone, we'll instantly in that moment, we'll know that it's him. And our faith will be made sight. And we should be compelled by that. The thought of seeing Jesus face to face and recognizing him, that should compel us. It should move us forward to make a commitment to him as best we can now to know him and to be changed transformed by him in light of what's to come, the awesome reality of seeing him face to face. So let me read these verses. It's the first five verses of chapter 22 in Revelation. John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All right, when I see the face of Jesus, that's what we're going after. When I see the face of Jesus, I will first of all experience life as was originally intended. The vision that we have here, these five verses in in chapter 22, they're really the completion of a vision that started in the previous chapter in verse 9. And John says here in verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. He describes it as bright as crystal and that it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And if we go back, we see this river many other times in the Scripture. In fact, we see this river all the way back to the original creation. Genesis 2 verse 9, in fact, describes Eden saying that there's a river that flows through Eden and out from it. Ezekiel, in in his book, the spectacular visions that he received in chapter 47, in fact, if you take Ezekiel 47 and and compare it to what we're reading here in Revelation, you're going to see many parallels. So Ezekiel describes a very similar vision where the river flows from the temple. The prophet Zechariah spoke of a river. Chapter 14, verse 8, he said, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. And we have here, of course, the description of New Jerusalem. And then in the psalm, Psalm 46.4, this is a psalm that I have read probably hundreds of times to people who are in crisis, that I've read so many times at bedsides of people who are facing deep and difficult trials because it brings such comfort. And we read this in Psalm 46.4, verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, New Jerusalem, the holy habitation of the Most High. And so what we have here in Revelation 22, speaking of this river, this is the culmination of a prophetic theme that's throughout the scriptures. And the river, just write this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. The river points to God as the source of all life. That's an important theme because we live at a time where trying to figure out what the source of all life is, is a compelling argument and discussion In our culture today, people want to know where we came from. So you have all these evolutionary researchers, these evolutionary biologists, these scientists who are out there trying to figure out the origin of life. And I want to say this because we're often pitted against each other. There's There's the creationists and there's the evolutionists and they're at war with one another and there's all these debates always between these two, but there's actually some things we have in common with the evolutionists. They, in fact, should be commended for their pursuit of the origins of life. They want to figure it out. In other words, they don't realize they're doing it. They're trying to figure out the way God did it. They're looking for the origin. In fact, they're looking for God himself, though they won't admit it. In fact, creationists and evolutionists both begin and both, both have the same beginning point. They both have the same starting point. They both believe 
in, in what we call creation ex nihilo or origins ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, the Latin phrase for from nothing or out of nothing. And so we believe there was nothing and there was God and God spoke things into existence. And the evolutionist believes that there was nothing and things came to be spontaneously. But we both start with the same premise. There was nothing. The evolutionist presuppositions are, however, keeping them from seeing several things that are very important. First of all, that design demands a designer. There's such intricate design in the universe and in the creation, and it demands that someone designed it. But second of all, that, that, um, that there had to be something that started it. If you have nothing, there has to be a spark. There has to be something or someone that gets things started. It's what's called the unmoved mover. We, of course, say that's God. And evolutionists say, we don't know. And we say, it's God. Now, we agree with these evolutionists. Life began from nothing, but not spontaneously as they would suppose, but at the word of God. You can read the whole story in Genesis 1 and 2, of course, but Genesis 1.11, just as an example, because we're going to talk about trees in a moment, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. There was no vegetation. There was none. Evolutionists would agree. There was a time when there was no vegetation. We read this, let the earth sprout vegetation, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. God is the source of life because he spoke it into existence. And that life is symbolized, here's where, why I said all of that, this life is symbolized by this river. This is a, the river of life. And I want us to lock this down. I want us to understand as deeply as we possibly can why God is giving us this image. You know, I've said it at many, many funerals that I've done that we were not created with the capacity for death. Human beings were not created with the capacity for death. We were not created to die. To die. We were not created uh, to cope with uh, the sorrow that comes with other people dying around us. Death is unnatural for human beings. I, um, I love the Lion King. How many people love the Lion King? You love the Lion King? Um, 94 animated, not the travesty of 2019, not that thing. How many people are still with me? The original Lion King, you're in, how many people saw the stage musical version in Toronto? Mervish did it. It was unbelievable. There were like animals coming down the aisles. It was incredible. It was incredible. Love the Lion King. What I don't like about the Lion King is this idea around death because it, 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 it goes against what we know to be true from the scriptures, because they sing the song, we all sing this song, circle of life. I won't sing the song. I don't do math, I don't sing, all right? So, so listen, circle of life. We don't believe in the circle of life. There is no circle of life. It's a fallacy. I still love the Lion King. But since the curse of death came upon humanity, and the curse of death came upon humanity because we chose to sin, and we brought death upon ourselves. But because that happened, because there's a curse of death now, there is life and there is death. It is linear. It's not a circle. 
It's linear. There is life and there is death. There's a beginning and there is an end. We are born and then we die. It's linear. It's a line. It's not a circle. We grieve our loved ones because we've been unnaturally separated from them. God never made us to deal with that. God never fit us to be separated from any other human being. It's unnatural. It was never his intention. And so you start to process your own grief. You think about losing people that you've lost and you wonder, why do I feel this way? It's because you were never meant to feel that way. You were never meant to lose anyone. Never meant to die. So God wants you and I, I, I say all of that because this river of life, God wants you and I to experience this river of life, to find life in him as he always intended. I thought about like all the different verses I could pull because it's all over the scripture about life itself and what God is trying to communicate to us here in, in, in clearest terms, Jesus said to Thomas in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You all know this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. And we fixate sometimes on the front two and kind of just like throw in the last one as if it's like the bonus. It's not the bonus. It's the whole thing. The way is the way to life. The truth is the truth about life, death, and sin. Everything points to him. Yes, people lose their way. Jesus is the way. You should walk in his way. But where are you going? To life. Yes, the world is confused about truth and you need to hear the truth. The truth about what? The life. This is God's whole thing. It started with a river. It ends with a river. It's life. God wants us to experience life as he has always intended and if I do that, I'll find healing for all of my sin-caused troubles. That's a funny thing, the way I worded that, because in reality, all of our troubles are sin-caused, so we didn't really need the adjective. All of our troubles are caused by sin. My sin? All of my troubles are caused by my sin. By the way, when I'm using um, first-person pronouns and I'm talking about me, like sometimes I'm talking about my testimony, like this is really true for me, but sometimes I'm using it because I just want you to own it and I want you to hear the first person and I want you to say that for yourself. Is everybody picking that up? You're not just here hearing like a Todd therapy session. Like you're, like you're supposed to be hearing the first-person pronouns and saying, yeah, that's me too. Everybody with me on that? Just nod your heads. You don't have to raise your hands or anything. I don't want to put you out. Everybody just nod your heads, okay? You're just owning this for yourself. So when I say all of my troubles are sin-caused troubles, and some of those are a result of my sin, I make choices, that brings trouble in my life. Everyone's experienced that. Or sometimes it's the result of someone else's sin. They've committed a sin, and that splashes back on me. And so now I'm affected. I have trouble in my life because you sinned. And sometimes 
Sometimes the troubles, the sin-caused troubles in my life are just the result of a broken world, an earth that has been tainted by sin, and so the whole system is broken. Things like illness and disease, those things are trouble in my life simply because the whole thing is broken and affected by sin. And so that's kind of like the premise for this. I'm going to find healing for all my sin-caused troubles. Notice verse 2, the river flowed through the middle of the street of the city, and so also on either side of the river was the tree of life. We have the street and we have the river. And in some fashion, I don't know how to sort this out, but in some fashion, uh, they're running parallel. Um, and this, this river and street running out from the throne of God in New Jerusalem is a, is a, is a tree-lined street. So it's not just one tree of life, but multiple of the tree of lives, uh, of, of uh, tree of life, uh, lining this river and this thoroughfare, this boulevard from the throne of God. And then notice this. These trees of life have 12 kinds of fruit. This is different than any tree we have on earth today. 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. How many people have heard of the fruit of the month club? Have you heard of that? Nobody's heard of the fruit of the month club? Have you heard of this? Harry and David, have you heard of Harry and David? It's a store in the States. So they, they have a fruit of the month club. Fruit of the month club is a trademarked phrase. It's like you literally, you sign up for this. You can go on the website, check this out. You, you, you can go on the website and you can sign up for fruit of the month club. You can sign someone else up. You just pay for it. It's like a birthday gift. And every month they deliver a box to their door and it's got different fruit in it every single month. Okay, it's fruit of the month. You know, you can also get wine or coffee or, or caramel popcorn, things like snacks that you can put in the box, but it's called the Fruit of the Month Club. Now, Harry and David, I'm, I'm, I'm going like, they got their idea from Revelation 22. God thought of Fruit of the Month Club long before they ever arrived on the scene because this is Fruit of the Month Club. This is, these trees are producing different fruit every single month. April, like April, they're producing strawberries, you know? May, 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 they got peaches, and June, they got oranges, and July, they got grapefruit. That's a bad choice. I could think of something else for that. Maybe in heaven, we're going to like that. I don't know. August, they have bananas. Like September, it's apples. I mean, God's so impressive, and he's doing something that's so far beyond our imagination. All this different, every month, different fruit. And this isn't just for our delight, which by the way, a little side note, the word delight and, the, and Garden of Eden, 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 that word means delight. It's a garden of delight. God gives us things just for our enjoyment. Fruit every month, it's amazing. But they're not just for our delight. But the purpose of these trees is eternal healing. Notice in verse two, that latter part there, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And we're the nations, like every tribe, people, nation, language. So there won't be any further traumas in eternity. We know that already. No, no further traumas in heaven that require any kind of, of healing. We've been assured of that back in chapter 21, verse 4. But this speaks to the promise of never-ending health and well-being. These... these this river of life and these trees that produce this fruit and, the, and these leaves are going to provide healing for us so that we will eternally be healthy. 
And you know this fits so well with what we saw in Genesis chapter three in the last part of that chapter because when Adam and Eve had sinned and the sin was discovered and then God pronounced the curses and then God said, you know what, we have a problem because if we leave them in the garden, they've eaten from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. But if we leave them in the garden, they're gonna eat from the tree of life and they're gonna live forever in their sin. They need to be banished from the garden and they were banished from the garden, and an angel was set there with a flaming sword to keep them out. And this is the reason why these trees provide us with eternal life. This is God's gift to us, to give us healing from all of our sin-caused troubles and to do so for all eternity. See, with our sin, we brought all of our trouble on ourselves, all of our moral trouble, all of our relational trouble, all, all, all of our physical trouble, all of it. We, we want to deal with it in a different way. We want to get nitpicky about things and we like to assign blame so that we can absolve ourselves of our responsibility for these things. In the classic Freudian approach to human thriving is to blame your mother for everything. That I'm the way I am because of my mother. I'm the way I am because of my parents. The way I was raised, my upbringing, the home I was raised in, I'm this way because of that. Or, or, or we want to excuse the place we've got ourselves in today by blaming our circumstances, other circumstances, like, well, I went through this. That's why I am the way I am today. And I get, I get I'm not trying to oversimplify, I get that there are factors and circumstances in people's life building their story, but behind it all is human depravity and specifically my own brand of it and your own brand of it. And so becoming a believer has to begin with the confession of sin. It has to start with the confession, hey, God, like I'm in trouble and I can't help myself. I'm in trouble. It's sin-caused trouble. And I need you to get me out of it. And this is important because there, there are people likely listening to me right now and, and you don't need a savior because you don't believe you need saving. And I can't help you because the starting point is the same for every single person. You have to admit your need. And once you believe then, what happens is you commit yourself to this healing and, and you commit to starting that process now, right at the point of your conversion for as many years as God gives you on this earth, you commit to that process for the healing of all your sin-caused troubles, whatever they may be. And you're not gonna get it perfect and no one's gonna arrive before that day when we see him face to face. But you are gonna commit yourself to what Paul said to the Philippians was, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I feel like that's the theme verse over every week of my life. What's your theme verse? I'm just working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I thought that's what you did last week. I did. I'm going to do it next week too. This is all we have. Until the day we pass from this life. And we do that. We work it out because, listen, we love Jesus. Love Jesus. We're grateful for what he's done for us on the cross. And because we're living in anticipation of what it's going to be like to not have to fight that battle anymore. 
when there's no more fear and trembling and my salvation is complete and realized and I'm in my glorified body looking at Jesus face to face. What a day that's going to be. A day when the leaves of the tree bring healing to every sin-caused trouble that I've experienced. So I'm going to pursue that healing now and... We're going to get really practical now. Everybody good? Okay, we're going to get super practical right now. We're going to overcome, the way we're going to do this is to overcome the wayward orientations of my heart. We're going to overcome the wayward orientations of my heart. For us to be in this place of enjoying eternal life that God has offered, the curse that was put on humanity has to be reversed. And that's what we see in verse 3. No longer... John says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but instead, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will, here's the key to it, worship him. Okay, the key to overcoming my wayward orientations in my heart, the key is worship. Now, the way that this happens isn't anything that we've mustered for ourselves. This is God doing this. Jesus actually assumed our curse on himself. Galatians 3.13, Paul said this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23 here. He says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus took the curse upon himself, our curse upon himself. It's the only way any of this happens. His death on the cross atoned for our sins, and he assumed our shame and our guilt on himself. He overcame the curse that was on us, and he did so by the shedding of his blood. Now, the implication of that, with the curse gone, is that my heart orientations now have an opportunity to be aligned with God, to change, to be better. And they should be changing during the entirety of my life, increasing my ability to worship him in advance of the day that I'm going to do that perfectly and face to face. So everything that characterizes my life at the point of my conversion and everything that characterizes my life as I continue to live down here, things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, not my list, Paul's, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, all of that gets replaced Okay, we're thinking about fruit trees. All of that gets replaced by the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. That's what we're seeking to do in this life. And so in the words of, of this verse, to use the two key words in, in this verse, all the accursed things out and all the worship things in. All the accursed things out and all the worship of God things in. Now, our challenge with really understanding this is that we have this very distorted view of what worship actually is. And we actually, notwithstanding the fact that we had a wonderful time of, of worship to start this service, we say worship, we think singing, we think that part of it. We might expand it to say we were at a worship service and include the whole 75 minutes that we're together. That includes prayers and the preaching of God's word. 
But most or more often than not, we think just about that, that 20 minutes that we spent singing. And today it was very special. It was a wonderful time of singing. And, and, and we engaged in it. You engaged in it in a wonderful way. But then I think, what if it, what if it had been 40 minutes? It was a little long, wasn't it? It was 40 minutes. I was standing the whole time. I was just looking at my watch. Did they have to do that bridge again and, and again and again? What if it was 60 minutes? See, then it starts to sound like it's a little bit too long. And we all, we're all thinking it. We're all thinking it. At some point, it's just too long. And, and so then we, we take that that view of worship, which is so compartmentalized, it's just like this little thing that we do, and we impose that view of worship on eternity. And so we think, when I die, in eternity, it's just like a perpetual, like just standing at the front, staring at the throne, singing songs for all eternity. And let's be honest, it sounds boring. You're so uncomfortable right now, you don't know whether to agree with me or not. I understand. God might strike me dead. I get it. It only sounds boring for some of you because, listen, we've distorted what we mean by that. We've just done ourselves such a great disservice by saying that it represents a never-ending worship service like the ones that we have in our mind that we experience here. We've, again, we've compartmentalized our worship in our lives right now. So we say, you know what worship is? Worship is that time when I go to harvest and we sit in the room and we do that for 75 minutes and then we're off and we do something else after that. But worship is just that little segment of the week and nothing else. And we project that onto our view of eternity and it's wrong. We have it wrong now. We don't even, it's not so much that we have it wrong, what our picture is. We have it wrong now. And that's affecting our view of eternity. Worship for the Christian is not what is done once a week in a gathered setting on Sundays, but is a minute by minute posture of devotion to God in all that we do seven days a week. That's worship. It is the attributing of worth to God with every breath we take in every aspect of our lives, in all of our conduct, in every word we speak, and even every thought we have is an act of worship to God. Paul locked this in for us in, in Romans 12.1, one of the most informative verses on what a Christian's worship should actually be about. And he said this, He's, he said, this is, uh, this is Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to present, not once, but in an ongoing way, to continually present yourselves as a living sacrifice, putting yourself on the altar to be sacrificed every single day. A sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, notice which is your spiritual worship. This is it. That's it. That's how you worship God. It's not Sunday. It's every day. It's every part of you all the time. I mean, it's one thing, and a lot of people think about religion this way. It's one thing to have religion as just some kind of coping me mechanism in your life. Like, so I, like, I go to church so I can process some things that happen during the week. Well, that's just therapy, and I am not your therapist. It's far more what's going on here than just a coping mechanism or a way to process things. 
This, this is, this is an, an intentional, being, worshiping in this way every single day of my life, every minute of every day, is intentionally addressing my heart orientations. That's what we're talking about in worship. Am I intentionally addressing the orientations of my heart? Because I actively worship many other things in any given week. And I'm saying that by way of testimony. This is personal. I worship many other things, many other gods other than Jesus Christ during the week. I do. I mean, I don't know if that's distressing for you to hear that from your lead pastor, but I'm telling you. I will leave this place today after proclaiming God's word and spending time with you in worship, and I will go into my afternoon and my evening and my week on Monday, and I will stop in at the temple of various other gods all week long. I will attribute worth to other things. I will give them my time and my attention. I will allow my heart orientation to be pulled away from Jesus Christ. It will happen all week long for me and also for you right? I mean, this is all of us. In, in any given week, if I could bring it down to the big three small g gods that we worship and introduce you to these gods, and you can determine for yourself how often you go to these temples to worship these gods, the big three, you know who they are, money, the god of money, sex, and power. These are the three gods that you most often worship at. In our sin, we are oriented or predisposed to go after these small G gods. These are wayward orientation, places where our heart is off the mark. And what eternity does is it fully reorients me to the one I was designed to worship. And the Christian life is about making every attempt to maintain my orientation to worship Christ now amidst all the temptations that I face to do otherwise. So I'm prepared right at this moment to take you in to each of these three temples and to get very practical right now. Do you want to do that? I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> the God of money. You know, I read this week, I read this week there's a pastor whose net worth, a pastor of a church, whose net worth is $60 million U.S. Now, with all of the cautions, I read the scripture, with all of the cautions about money, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong. But it's very hard to get into heaven when you have that much money. And the scriptures make that clear. Everything, everything in the scripture warns us about that kind of wealth and I said to, their, to my staff team this week when I found this out, I said to my staff team, I would not want to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age and be worth $60 million. I just wouldn't want to be. Now, if that pastor can work that out in his own heart and his own conscience and stand before God with that kind of money, that's between him and God, and that's fine. I'm happy for him if he can work that out. But I'm going to tell you right now, the orientation of my heart couldn't handle that. And that's just wealth. That's crazy wealth. I doubt anybody here has that. If you do, I do want to talk to you after about <laughs> an opportunity. 
But you know, the money God gets us in different ways. Coveting. I mean, the, the funny thing is, like, you don't even have to have money to be oriented toward it. Like, there's people who don't have any money, and that's all they think about. I wish I had more money. I wish I had more things. I'm going to buy a lottery ticket. I'm going to try and get more money because I think about it. I dream about the 50 million that I could have. I dream about it. I think about it. You don't have to have it to be oriented toward it. Or how about stealing? You say, I don't steal money. Well, it is tax season. You could bring in your T1s. We could look at your forms. We could ask the questions. Did you cheat the government in any way? Give the money what, what, what the, give the, give the government the money they're asking for. Don't hold it back. That's stealing. You just stopped into the, to the temple of the God of money. Or how about just greed? I have what I have. I want it. I'm keeping it for myself. Lack of generosity or just a wastefulness. Okay, how about the second one? That's enough on money. Stop into the temple of, of pleasure or sex. Let's just talk about sex specifically. The, well, God orientation is, is this. I'm going to say this twice so, so we're super clear on this. But the God orientation or the biblical orientation here is that sexual intimacy happens only inside of monogamous, biologically heterosexual marriage. I'll say it again. I, I promise I'd say it twice. Sexual intimacy happens only inside of monogamous, biologically heterosexual marriage. That's the God orientation. And anything outside of that is a wayward heart orientation. And the issue is not that you are tempted. It's, the issue is not that you're tempted. We're all tempted. We're all tempted by something. The issue is not that you're tempted, but that you might give in to that temptation. And so if we could just talk about same-sex attraction for a moment. But the one who is tempted by same-sex attraction may battle, if they're a Christian, they may battle that heart orientation throughout their entire Christian life, knowing what the scriptures say about it, but never consummate that with another person. And that's exactly what we want to see. There's no doubt that watching on the live stream or here in this room or in the room at nine o'clock, there's no doubt at all that we have many people who are struggling with same-sex attraction but are not acting on it because they're battling it out with their flesh and they're trying to align their heart orientation with the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. I mean, this is the same battle that someone might, might face um, with regard to uh, gossip or stealing or lying or hating or overeating or overspending. Let's not overplay one temptation over any other temptation or sin. Another example in this, in this same category, some may be tempted to think that they're a different gender. It's a sensitive issue. A different gender than what their biology says. But that is a wayward orientation that denies the image of God in each person. And others think that stepping outside of their marriage or being sexually active before marriage is okay. And if you believe that, you're just making things up for yourself because that is not biblical. That is not a God-oriented heart. Your heart is oriented towards your own pleasure and not the Lord. And that becomes your worship. Here's the third God, small g God, the God of power. And some of you are going to immediately dismiss this and say, you know what, 
This one doesn't apply to me. I'm not in a power position. This, this, I'm not a leader. I'm not a boss. But you know what? The most valuable thing in our culture today is not, in fact, money. The most valuable thing in our culture today is information. Information is far more influential, far more powerful than money itself. And whenever we possess information, we then put ourselves in a power position. If you're married, if you're a husband or a wife, you know things. If you're a parent, you're in a position of power. If you have friends or you have relationships of any kind and you have any information about them, you're in a power position. The simplest example of this is, is, is the possessing and use of information and, and then distorting it, lying about something, or, or gossiping. I, I take something I know about a person, and then I share that with other people. And why do I do that? To tear this person down and to put myself in a more favorable light. It's a power move. You're worshiping the God of power. The distorting of truth, manipulation of words, slander, gaslighting, abusive comments, anger, insults, coercion. They're all power moves. They're all acts of worship of the small g God of power. And they all betray the orientation of your heart. And in that moment that you do any of these things, that you stop into any of these temples, you have chosen your God. And it isn't Jesus. And so listen, I have to overcome all of this because that's where I'm headed. I'm going to have this face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And so I want to finally, look, the last two really quickly, finally lock down my true identity. Here it is in verse four. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I mean, this is, this is our faith made sight because we're going to see him with our own eyes. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that, that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And that's the way we live our life as Christians. We don't see our God. We don't see our Savior. Never seen him. But we believe in him. We put our faith in him on the basis of these convictions that we have, the, the evidence of things not seen. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Sure, we, we see God in the creation. He says that the creation is evidence of him. We see him in the creation, but we don't see the creator. We sense his presence We have the Holy Spirit resident inside of us as believers, but we don't see the Holy Spirit. We see his work in saving people, in restoring lives. But the great physician who's doing all the healing remains hidden to us. But when we see him, we will be marked with our true identity as a child of God. And all of that twisting and turning over orientations gets settled right here in this moment. If I know who I am, if I know my identity as a child of God, then the reality is money, sex, and power will have no grip on me. Have no grip on me. No hold. Won't satisfy me in the least. And when I settle that, when I settle who I am and I set myself on that right path, then I will engage in the work I was always created to do, 
It's our last point here. Adam was given work in the garden. He was given dominion over the creation. And so when we think about what heaven is like and we have this image of this eternal, perpetual, never-ending worship, so- worship singing time, listen, it's not that. It's, it's meaningful work. It's dominion over creation. In some fashion, in eternity, we're going to have work to do. And the Lord is short on details. We're not quite sure how that's all going to play out. But we know, verse 5, we know that night will be no more. There'll be no need of light or lamp or sun. The Lord God will be our light. And we will reign. Here it is. We will reign forever and ever. A reference to the, the first mandate that God gave for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. The dominion mandate that was given to the first human beings is being re-given to humanity. We're going to reign with God. He's going to charge us with authority and responsibility in the new heavens and the new earth. Life in new Jerusalem will be meaningful and fulfilling in a way that we can't even imagine. It's what we were always made to do. And here's the thing, our service for Him in the church right now as the church. All of that is done in anticipation of the day when we're going to serve Him forever. If you have no heart to serve, like you should, if you're a Christian, you should have a heart to serve, to be engaged in ministry and reaching people for Jesus and using your gifts and talents to serve Him, and to serve others. And if you have no heart to serve, I doubt you're going to like heaven or even want to be there. It's an eternity of serving others and serving God. So the point is, is simple. Like if you're, if you're going to anticipate that day when you see Jesus face to face, when you're going to be serving for all eternity in the kingdom of God, then you should want to do that now. Engage now in the work that you were created to do. Now here's a little bonus in this, we've worked through all the verses, and here's a little bonus at the end of this, because we're in the last chapter of the entire Bible. I mean, the only page I have left is the weights and measures. I mean, that's, we're into the maps and the concordance. That's all that's left. We're at the end, and, and, and in this chapter, the surprise thing is that this whole book with all these different books in it and all these different authors written over thousands of years is actually one book and one story with one plot line and one theme. We started in Eden and it's a return to what God always intended for us. It's a return to Eden. That's what this book is about. Bois Fanning said this, in the end time, God will replicate in escalated fashion what his design for humans was at the creation. And so these five verses of Revelation 22 give us a vision of restored creation. What we see here is a reversal, a restoration, and even an escalation, an elevation of what was given and lost in Genesis 1 to 3. And in fact, in your notes... And we'll put this on socials tomorrow, but I've created a resource of seven points of parallel between these five verses and what we see in Genesis 1 to 3. You want further study on this? Go and compare all those verses and see how God has not only restored what we lost, but enhanced it and made it better and more awesome. And with all of that, the message is clear. Let's fully anticipate 
as believers now what it means, what it's going to be like to see Jesus Christ face to face. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, um, again, we are overwhelmed by your goodness toward us in giving us your word and, and giving us these promises and this description of eternity. God, this should be changing us. We should be transformed more fully into the image of Jesus Christ, more submissive to the Holy Spirit. So God, no doubt we're going to face some battles this week. We're going to face some temptations to go into the wrong temples and worship the wrong things. God, forgive us. Strive with us and fill us with your Holy Spirit to be able to resist those temptations. And beyond that, God, there's still some people on the live stream and here in the room who have not yet committed their life to Christ. I pray, God, that today would be their day. That they would see the glory of what's ahead of us and not want to miss any of it. So, Father, work, Holy Spirit, work in this place. And in each one of us, I pray in Christ's name.